All right. So what happened to the church? We've heard from Pastor Chris often enough that the church is failing. Things are happening, and many of the traditional churches that uh, used to be vibrant, full of people worshiping the Lord and uh, following his word, are now sitting vacant, or they're being used for other purposes. I remember I went to one year at Temple University down in Philly, and the year or a year or two after I had left that one year, they opened up uh, the Baptist Temple right on campus, main campus on Broad Street, to be the house for the president. So that was really uncomfortable, horrible uh, thing. So what a shame. Churches are closing. Christians are getting cold and moving away from the gospel. Not everywhere, because we know we're here, right? We're here, we're in church, and there are other uh, vibrant churches that are starting and moving forward and growing. Uh, But by and large, something has happened to the church and uh, we learned about the, uh, the corporate invasion of the church uh, through Pastor Chris. And now we want to concentrate this week on the, the criticism that infects the church. Criticism that infects the church. So I want to start this message with some criticism. I want to criticize, is it coming up with a picture? We got the picture. I want to criticize copyright law. And I want to criticize, I don't know who's in charge of that. It's got to be some smoky, smoke-filled room in Washington somewhere that doesn't allow us to, uh, to play a video. Who can recognize this person? A little louder. Ratatouille, and who, what's the guy's name? Anton Ego. Very good, Anton Ego. Uh, he was a food what? critic, a food critic. And of course, the story goes that uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Chef Linguini was only covering literally for a rat that was cooking the food. <laughs> and so the scene is uh, the rat kind of circling underside, uh, inside the chef's cap. And for the first time, Anton Ego walks in and lets uh, Chef Linguini know that he has just entered a very serious game. And there is no good game without an opponent, and Anton Ego is going to be that opponent. He is going to criticize uh, Chef Linguini and criticize Gusteau's restaurant and try to wreak havoc and close down Gusteau's because he was successful at doing that in, uh, uh, previously in the history of the restaurant. So uh, there are all kinds of critics. There's food critics, there are movie critics, there are literary critics, uh, and there's all kinds of criticism as well. Uh, There's a list that I was looking at from uh, a website, Gospel Coalition, Tom Rayner, lists these five types of criticism. So just to get get started here, we don't want to say that all criticism is bad. Uh, Obviously, there's an important service in food criticism, because you don't want to go to a bad restaurant and have a bad night. You want to go uh, to a restaurant that has good reviews, right? Uh, So there is constructive criticism. There is criticism that helps. We oftentimes hear that word criticism and think that it's a negative thing, but it can be positive. Uh, Movie critics, you don't want to go to a movie and get surprised by something that you didn't wish, you you were hoping your children wouldn't see or hear or or yourself, uh, or just not have a good 
day. Just be a rotten movie, and it ruined the the time, uh, the evening. So there's constructive criticism. There is negligent criticism. That is, people offer their opinions at times when they're not really thinking about who's listening or what they're really saying and how that will affect the person that's listening. And so it's sort of like an honest mistake. It's not meant to damage, but it does damage just because they were negligent. They didn't know all the facts about what was going on. Uh, There's hurt criticism, and obviously this is not on the receiver's end. This is on the giver's end where someone's been wounded, someone has been uh, has a missed opportunity or has been affected by someone, and then they feel the need to always just throw cast aspersions on people and criticize uh, things and people that are going on and uh, because they're hurt. It's coming out of a heart of, of hurtfulness. And then there is self-serving criticism, which is when you can belittle someone else, supposedly your reputation gets raised, right? So that's self-serving. And then the last kind that's mentioned is is sinful criticism. So we want to focus on that last one, the last kind of criticism, not to be negative, but just to serve as a warning to uh, help us think about um, the effect of criticism in the church. Uh, Definition of criticism is the expression of disapproval of someone or something based on perceived faults or mistakes. Uh, Example, he received a lot of criticism in the newspaper. Uh, There's criticism all through the Bible. In a sense, the fall was caused by criticism. The serpent came alongside Eve and said, God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He forbid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil just because he doesn't want you to be like him. He's keeping something from you. Criticism. Uh, As we step through the Old Testament, Moses was severely criticized over and over again, it seems, by the Israelites for taking them out of Egypt. Well, not necessarily taking them out of Egypt, but leading them into the desert, right? That was supposedly a bad decision. And uh, he was also criticized for bringing the plagues on Egypt so they could be free in the first place. David was criticized for dancing before the Lord by Michael. David was excited about the Lord and happy that God was doing great things, bringing the ark up to the temple, and his wife decided she didn't like that. And so she criticized, look at him. He looks like a fool. He's out there. He's a king. He should be staid and proper. And there he is out there dancing with everybody in the street. Ridiculous, she said. Then we get to the New Testament, and all of us are familiar with the Pharisees and how they criticized Jesus. They criticized uh, his disciples for not washing their hands before they eat. No big deal. Who cares, right? They criticized Jesus because he ate with publicans and sinners or tax collectors and sinful people, people that had uh, uh, nasty backgrounds or sordid backgrounds, much like us. (laughs) And... They also criticized him for healing someone on the Sabbath day. We're going to get back to that one. Uh, That's uh, seriously sinister, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But the problem is when 
you would expect that the Pharisees would criticize Jesus. But what happens when that criticism comes into the church? Churches have literally split, have divided, and then their memberships have disappeared because somebody's critical of the color of the carpet. There's a church fight and a church split because they didn't like the color of the walls or they didn't like the order of service, that they had four songs instead of uh, three songs or uh, criticism after criticism of things that people don't like and then uh, the churches divide. And you say, oh, that would never happen in the New Testament church. And yet just last week, Chris almost stole my thunder. In John chapter 12, uh, and I promise you, before Chris ever got up last week, I had thoroughly studied John chapter 12 for this purpose, but uh, it's in the same passage. And thankfully, uh, the topics didn't overlap at all, it seemed like. So we're going back to the same passage. John chapter 12 today says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Thankfully, I don't have to go into details this week because Chris covered all that, so he could be thanked for that. Um, But it says, but... Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it, he used, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Father, we just ask you this morning that as we look into your word, that you would open our hearts to the truth of scripture regarding criticism, and you would purify our hearts through the washing of the water of the word so that we can have pure thoughts toward you, toward our fellow Christians, toward your work in the world, and that way be used of you. That way have joy and peace and enjoy one another's fellowship, and serve together, and find strength from one another, and comfort from each other, and from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So criticism. Criticism did come into the church, right? Through someone who was in the church, on the church rolls, but not necessarily a believer. Criticism can also come through those who do know the Lord, and do love the Lord. And so we have to check our hearts, check our thoughts with the word of God and find out whether what we're thinking is constructive 
or whether it's destructive, whether it's hurting, and the things that we say and who we say them to. And so uh, we're talking about criticism today, and we can learn some very important lessons from criticism in this passage. So we start with, uh, where does a critical spirit come from? Where does that start? Uh, In your notes, it'll say, the criticism sometimes is based on a twisted truth. Criticism is sometimes based on a twisted truth. You'll notice here that Judas uh, was passing himself off as a super spiritual person, right? Uh, He wasn't going to just say, uh, oh, that's a horrible sacrifice. What an idiot she is. Uh, She should never have wasted all that expensive perfume because we could have sold it and I could have gotten it for myself. He's never going to say that. And that's true of many critics. They're not out to, to present themselves what's really going on in their hearts, but uh, he presented a, a, a false spiritual narrative, uh, as we like to, we hear in the news, fake news these days. Uh, he used a very spiritual principle to try to defend himself. Isn't that just like the devil? 2 Corinthians tells us that, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, tells us that the devil appears as an angel of light. We already referenced uh, the fall of man and how that Satan wasn't going to say, hey, you know, go ahead and eat that fruit. It'll make you miserable. You're going to die. No. He comes with a, a false spirituality that uh, he comes with wisdom and tries to convince Eve that this is a good thing. This is going to work out for you. This is better for you. And Judas did the same thing. Judas uh, made the argument that what she gave, the expense that she made, could have been used to help the poor. That's a biblical topic. There are many, many verses throughout the Scripture that talk about uh, having our hearts open to, to those that have needs, giving a cup of water in Jesus' name. Or if, if, you, if you find someone that doesn't have a coat, you give them your coat. And many, many places where God honors and blesses those whose hearts are open to the poor and willing and interested to help in time of need. And so this is a good thing. That was an appropriate thing, but it was the motivation that was behind it. That Judas took that truth and twisted it into something that was damaging and not appropriate. And so there's an example as well of this sort of criticism towards Jesus. And this is where uh, I was saying that we were going to deal with the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus. Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 10 through 14 say this. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for how many years? If anybody's looked it up. Oh, it's not on the screen, so I'll give you the answer. 18 years she had a disabling spirit. She was bent over and could not straighten herself, fully straighten herself. And Jesus saw her. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, 
There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath you untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And the story goes on. But you get the point. Jesus did something absolutely miraculous on a Sabbath day. He healed this woman who was bent over that could not stand up straightly. She had a problem with her spine, a problem with her back, and you know many conjecture as to what this actual sickness could have been, and we don't really need to go there. We, we can accept that the Bible just says that she could not straight, fully straighten her body. It was physically impossible. She had an ailment, uh, maybe from uh, birth, uh, maybe uh, not quite from birth, but 18 years, and Jesus, all he had to do was put his hands on her, and he heals her, and she's walking properly, but he did it on the Sabbath day when the Jews were not supposed to work. They were not supposed to be doing uh, heavy lifting and uh, heavy activities, and there's all kinds of lists as to what they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. But the Pharisees were convinced that this woman should not be uh, doing anything with her back on the Sabbath day, and Jesus should not be expending the energy for her to be healed on the Sabbath day. And so they criticized him. They painted him out to be some sort of a criminal in, in the Jewish society because he healed on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was a truth for the Jews in those days, and they were supposed to obey uh, God's plan for the Sabbath day as Jews. And so when he did this, there was truth behind what they were saying, but it was being twisted, changed, to prevent him from healing a woman alleviating a woman that had an ailment for 18 years. What could possibly have been in their heart? Anger, jealousy, uh, uh, discontentment, fear that they would be uh, reduced to a smaller role in the government if Jesus actually was the Messiah. We don't really know exactly what all was in their hearts, but they were fighting hard to keep their uh, false dream alive by criticizing and casting aspersions on somebody else. And that happens often in the church. People uh, are armchair quarterbacks, so to speak, or Monday morning quarterbacks where they believe they know better how to do ministry. I, I'll never forget a guy who, uh, in one of my former churches, had so much to say time and again about the missions program and about how that uh, money shouldn't be spent in this kind of ministry. It should be spent in that kind of ministry. And this particular person, they're, they're not really qualified to be a missionary. We should, they, should, they should wait a while. They should be better trained. He had so many opinions about what should be done in the missions program uh, until it was found out that the truth was he wasn't giving a dime to missions. So all of his criticisms were all just a cover for his own disobedience, the fact that he didn't want to give to the missions program. So he found 101 reasons not to give. This happens in churches, folks. Unfortunately, it's a reality. Somebody takes a truth and they twist it 
because of uh, something going on in their own hearts, and they take that truth and try to defend themselves from doing what really is right. Dangerous thing, dangerous thing. So criticism sometimes is based on a twisted truth, but secondly, criticism is sometimes motivated by sinful impulses. And now we're definitely speaking specifically of the negative, uh, hurtful type of criticism, not constructive criticism. We're going to deal with that toward the end, and I'll share some things about that. But this is the hurtful kind. This is the kind that is not in the will of God, and it's not helping anybody, but uh, it's many times uh, motivated by sinful impulses. It's a cover. It's a cover-up. Verse 6 shows us that Judas was motivated by greed. It says there, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a what? A thief. And he had charge of the money bag. What did he do with this money bag? He stole from it. Can you believe this? People think, oh, churches should be perfect and there should never be a hypocrite and never anything bad happen in church. But this was the church that Jesus started. This was the church that Jesus built. And with his knowledge... Judas was handling the money. And with his knowledge, Judas was slipping a few bills in his pocket from time to time. I guess coins. I don't know what they, I don't think they had paper money back then. But he was taking from the church. He was stealing from the church. And Jesus was the pastor. And here he is. So oftentimes people lash out and criticize others because something's going on in their own hearts. There's an ulterior motive, as they say. James 4 says this about uh, that ulterior motive. He's abundantly clear with the, the New Testament church in his day. He said, from whence come wars and fightings among you? This got to be the King James, right? Oh, yeah, I know why I chose this. I'll, we'll mention that in a second. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts? that war in your members, uh, that word lust in the ESV says passions, passions. So I thought it was just a little bit clearer, pointing out that there are negative types of passions in our life. We should have a passion for uh, serving in church. We should have a passion for worshiping the Lord. Passion is good, but passion can step over the line. We should have a passion uh, for uh, one another, and we should have a passion for our spouse. But there are times when that may cross the line, and then the Bible calls that lust. It calls it lust. There's a limit to the, the, the uh, feelings we have towards others. And so uh, here James points out, where do our quarrels, where do our fights come from? Where do our discussions come from? Where does the, the severe criticism come from in people's hearts? Well, he says it comes from the lust. It comes from the passion that's out of control. It comes from that the inner man that defiles someone. You know, the, Jesus said it's not what goes into us that defiles us. We think by eating something or drinking something that we are somehow made unclean. And, of course, all through the Old Testament, that's true. They were told that they became unclean by eating certain things or drinking certain things. But Jesus said that's not how it really works. The truth is it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. 
It's those passions, those human passions inside that eventually cross the line and get out of kilter and cause us to be defiled or to be sinful in the eyes of God. And that's where this criticism from Judas came from. He was a thief. He was greedy. He loved to have things. He loved to pamper himself and always have enough money and always have some nice things going on. I'm sure he didn't flaunt his wealth in front of other people. Uh, Like the tax collectors, the publicans of his day, definitely stole money and then flaunted it in front of everybody. And that's why they had such a bad reputation. But Judas did it on the down low. He did it secretly. And he's just helping himself out once in a while. Um, Why do other people criticize? There's numerous reasons why there's negative criticism in the church. Uh, There is the the desire for gain. Uh, Literally, we have known, and uh, uh, Andy and I have talked about his experience in, in past churches with the competition between pastors and one wants to be better than the other, wants to have a better reputation, and some of that has to do with the offerings and the money and, and uh, having driving a, a nice car and, and being known in the community and all that sort of stuff. And it's all that ego. It's all that Anton ego down inside that they want to be known as somebody special. And so for that reason, leaders are criticized all the time all the time. I don't want to scare anyone, but, and we want you to ultimately be involved in ministries, and as you are, as you show that you have a gift, grow in responsibility in those areas, but beware as you grow in responsibility and you get in a place of leadership, there is no shortage of criticism. There's no shortage of criticism, and that's true of our, uh, our own leaders in our own church, Please be charitable to Pastor Chris. Please get to know him, the scripture says in Thessalonians. Get to know your leaders. Find out what makes them tick, what their motivation is, why they're really doing what they're doing, and uh, follow their leadership. Follow their leadership because they watch for your souls. And, And they're always criticized. They're always the most vulnerable because they're always the most visible. There's other motives. Uh, It could be jealousy, that somebody wants that position. They want to be in that position of authority. They want that responsibility and to have control of that area of ministry. Uh, Sometimes uh, people are heckled simply because they, the person feels so inadequate. The heckler feels so inadequate. They can't do it. They know they can't do it. So the only thing left to them is to make the person that can do it feel bad. It's to raise up their own profile. Perhaps the worst kind of criticism in this sense, the worst motivation for criticism in the church often comes, unfortunately, from the older saints, the mature saints who have arrived in spirituality, and along comes a new believer, all bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, excited, and they're going to serve the Lord, and they're going to do this, and God's going to answer their prayer, and this person's going to get saved, and they're going to work in this ministry, and God's going to grow that ministry. And the old wet blanket saint says, hold on now, youngin, hold on. You don't know what it's like. I've been in this 40 years, and church is just like the world. You'll find out. It's tough times being a Christian. People don't listen, right? 
Wow, ouch. That is a type of criticism that we want to avoid like the plague here at Harvest. Please don't ever get into that. Please don't ever think that you have arrived as a Christian and you're in a place to tell everybody else, oh, that's not how it's done. Even if you are a successful Christian and you've seen a bunch of uh, souls saved and you've been involved in ministry that's grown and great things have happened, please don't throw a wet blanket on the new Christians, those that really honestly want to serve the Lord. Don't throw a wet blanket uh, on those that have been offended and have gone away for a while. We have a lot of uh, members that have been damaged by other churches at times and have come to a place of healing and a place where they have their fires have been rekindled and now they're really excited. And it can happen here just like anywhere else. Somebody's going to, an older Christian's going to throw the wet blanket on them. Why do you think these churches are dying? It's because they've, their membership has grown and then all of a sudden uh, they start telling all the new believers, all the young Christians, how to do things, and they start leaving. They don't need that. And they go on their way. And then the church drops in numbers, and it turns out that in the end, the believers that are left are only uh, uh, seniors and the upper age Christians, and then the church disappears. Criticism. Throwing a wet blanket on things. Judas tried to do it. Thirdly, criticism also is sometimes followed by total treason. Criticism, in a sense, is treason on its own, but in Judas's case, unfortunately, it led to total treason. Verse 4 tells us, Jesus told us, that Judas was one of his disciples, he who, he who was about to betray him. What could possibly have gone through Judas' mind the moment in, in verse 10, it tells us the Pharisees hatched this plot to kill Lazarus and kill Jesus. What could possibly have gone through Judas' mind to justify this kind of attitude? Jealousy? Could it have been that Judas thought he had a better way? He knew better than Jesus how this thing was supposed to go down? Wow. Wow. That's pride, tremendous pride. When we think we've arrived and we know how this stuff's supposed to work and we can tell God how to do things. Do we do that? Yeah, we do. We really do. Ouch. This is the reality of church life. We are human beings, right? Perhaps Judas just was pushed over the tipping point by this situation where uh, Mary is praised because of the sacrifice she made for him and he decides to criticize, and that pushed him over the edge to, to perform total treason against Jesus. Folks, the pathway of hurtful, negative criticism ends here. It doesn't end in good things. It doesn't end in helping the body of Christ. In the end, it's all about damaging. It's all about uh, padding someone else's reputation and destroying everybody else. And that's what happened with Judas. So quickly, how do we evaluate criticism? First of all, how do we evaluate criticism? Ephesians 4 verse 15 says that we should speak the truth in love and grow up 
in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speak the truth in love. We said, first of all, sometimes criticism is a twist of a truth. Let's be sure, first of all, that we know the truth. We have studied the scripture to know what it says, not just a proof text like the cults. They like to take one little verse and say, oh, this, we're going to frame a whole hierarchy of theology on this, and we're going to do this. And then when you go to study the rest of the Bible, it was totally misinterpreted. Don't do that. Don't, don't go down that road. Find out what the truth is, and then speak the truth in love. So opinions need to be biblical. Opinions need to be directed to the right people as well. Proverbs uh, chapter 25 says this, argue your case with your neighbor, what? Himself, himself, and do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. You want to get a bad reputation? Just go around criticizing everybody else. Criticize their reputation. You know where that ends? You reap what you sow. Your reputation is going to go down the tubes. So uh, opinions need to be biblical. They need to be directed to the right person. It says, go to that person alone. We, please mis- don't misunderstand this message. I never said that you shouldn't have an opinion and that you shouldn't voice that opinion. Opinions are good. Opinions are welcome. This is America and we live in a free country, and you are welcome to offer your opinions. But the Bible puts some, some guidelines on it that you ought to offer that opinion to the right person and start with in private. If it's a personal matter, go in private. And I would say at that same time, we ought to make sure that we distinguish between sin and preference. If someone is living in sin and they are disobeying the word of God and they need correction, then by all means, you should go and talk to them if you have a relationship with them or find someone who does have a relationship with them and maybe you can go together, but go to them, talk to them. But if it is a preference, if it's not a scriptural topic, if it's not something that the Bible has an opinion on, why are you criticizing them? You're on dangerous ground. You can just forget about those things and love. Love overlooks faults, Proverbs says. It just passes it on by because you love that person. So be discerning there. Direct it to the right people. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And last, opinions need to be rightly motivated. Judas' motivation was greed. Our motivation should be this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, Psalm 19, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, a love of God, a love of God. That's where it's at. Mary broke the alabaster box and poured out the expensive ointment because she loved Jesus. So our motivation in all that we do should be because we love Jesus, we love his people, we want his people to prosper sincerely from the bottom of our hearts, and so we should be motivated properly. I want to end with a confession because I want you to know we are going to be installing elders on the 29th, and I thank God that I'm in a place where I've been asked to consider that possibility but I want you to know that the men that you are 
that the church is calling and appointing to be elders in this case are human beings. When I came to Harvest, it was through a, um, a decision that was made at our former church, Muhlenberg Area Community Church, that we would become Harvest, uh, a church plant of Harvest here in Reading. And at that time, uh, we were asked to, uh, I was an elder amongst the three elders plus the pastor at that time, and there was, the viewpoint was that the pastor was different than the elders, we were just administrators. But uh, at that time, we were asked to step down. We were asked to give up our position as elder, and I convinced myself that I was okay with that. But time went on, days went on, Pastor Chris came and began to lead the church in a certain direction, and I got cross. I got poorly motivated regarding Chris and the work that was going on here. At first, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but soon it began to spiral in a wrong direction because of what was going on in my heart. And I began to talk. And I think Chris knew in some ways, but he never sort of confronted me about that. But he preached a message on Ruth one Sunday right here. And during the worship time afterwards, and I don't even remember what the song had to do with, but God broke my heart. And I realized I was doing just what Judas was. I was involved with something that was wonderful, but somehow I was viewing it as something evil, something bad, and I was criticizing. I could do it better. Folks, I can't do it better. The elders that you're uh, appointing can't do it better. Only Jesus can do it right. Chris is a wonderful Christian man who loves the Lord and follows God with all his heart. And when he makes mistakes, he will let us know. He's, he's very transparent in that way. And so God broke my heart, and I came down and hugged Chris, and I bawled, and God brought us back together again. A right spirit came back. How's your spirit this morning toward Jesus? How's your spirit towards the work that God's doing? I hope it's clean. I pray it's clean. I hope it's not like Judas in John chapter 12. Let's beware of the spirit of criticism because it could kill our church. But if we're able to conquer that through the power of God and through the blood of Jesus Christ, we will have a wonderful experience and spirit here as a church. So I just invite you to open up your heart to him and follow his leadership in these areas. So God bless.